Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have the guru that you've never heard of, Eddie Obeng. He's the CEO of Pentacle Virtual Business School. He's created a fantastic virtual environment called Cube, which we'll discuss. Eddie, could you give a quick introduction to who you are and how you got there? Yeah, sure, Marcus. Um, so I'm quite lucky because I've had a quite a varied journey to get here. I mean, I I trained initially as an engineer, then I did an economics degree at night school. I trained also as a biochemical engineer, which got nothing to do with engineering because it's about bugs. I worked as a researcher for a business school. I ran a business school called Ashridge. I was a director there. And then I started as an entrepreneur with Pentacle. And then I've also been a digital pioneer. So I've done tons of different things as I've gone through the journey. Right now, what I try and do and what I've tried to do all the way through is to try to um, really get people and organizations to sort of wake up and see that most of the challenges around them are self-inflicted and that a different way of working, a different way of thinking, they can actually get rid of all the stuff which they moan about all the time. So that's what I've done all the time and created tools for that. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's a breath of fresh air. What are the four most common questions that CEOs ask you when they're first engaging? So I have a policy of what I call open doors. So I try not to push on closed doors. So I only end up speaking with CEOs who actually have an inkling of doing something different and new and, and so on. So I don't know what the other CEOs would ask me, the ones who don't want to move, because they'll ask me questions like, have you done this before? And I'll go, no, of course not. It's the first time I've met you. What are you talking about? Of course, your problem is <laughs> going to be difficult. Different. Why do you think I would give you the same solution as someone else? It won't work for you. So the, the CEOs who are a bit crazy and don't talk to me. So I end up talking to the nice ones, okay? The nice ones, generally, they ask me questions like, will you be involved all the way through? At which point I go, why would I miss out on the fun? I mean, this is a change program. That's what I do. They will ask me questions like, um, how will this land with our people? That's the question they always ask. And I go, well, you know, the fact we're talking probably means your people are like most other people, you know, you've probably put them under too much change. So they're stressed. They're a bit resistant. Yet another bloody consultant coming along. So of course, it's not going to land well unless we manage it. That's the whole point. The other one which they'll ask me about is because usually they're worried about things like profit and productivity and all these other things. Generally, and I'm not being rude, the things they're worrying about are either the wrong things or they're not the root cause issues. So symptoms at the wrong end of the problem. Well, what happens is you suffer the effects of what's going on. You know, so if if you if every time you go out to work, you get wet in the rain. And every time you go out, you get wet in the rain. You sort of get annoyed with the rain and you forget that the problems you forgot to take your umbrella. And this is quite a common thing. So generally what people focus on is what's bugging them, not what the actual problem is. And that's why they've hired me. Because why have a dog and bark yourself? You know, but they want to do the barking. So those are the sort of typical questions which I get asked. Then I ask them questions as well, like um, how keen are you to embed this? Sometimes you get, I make the difference to what I call a, a wedding and a marriage. I don't know whether this helps or not. But a lot of the time, people come to you because they have a specific issue or a specific event. So they'll say, I'm kicking off my top 50. Can you help me get them aligned or something like that? And I go, great. And what I describe that is, as I, I describe it as a wedding. We're going to have a great time. Everyone's going, wow, wow, woo, 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 et cetera. But the really important thing is the marriage. What happens afterwards? Not the wedding. And everyone... CEOs down, focus on the ticking of the box that we've had a great wedding. So I then poke them in the ribs and say, well, how are you going to keep it going? How are you going to change the behaviors? Habits don't happen overnight and stuff like that. If I'm speaking too fast, Marcus, slow me down. If the audience can't keep up, they're on the wrong podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It reminded me of Woodrow Wilson's quote, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. Everyone says that they want change, but no one's willing to do it. So what are the three most important questions that you are not asked? The things which people forget to ask me generally is, number one, they forget to ask me how they're going to embed it. They sort of assume that, okay, so let's understand change. So you have, people know what they're up to. Then either because you choose to or because the world changes, something different must be done. Doing that different thing is hard. Making change work in the middle bit has like a 20 or 25% success rate. So most organizations setting off to do change are going to fail. That's the middle bit. Now, even though you've delivered this new change, don't forget all the previous habits, methods, processes are still in place. So bedding it into a new way of working 
that is itself a nightmare. If you leave it to just happen, it always just gets thrown out again. So they always forget that part of it. They forget also that the human beings are more of a pain in change than the, the processes, systems or machinery or whatever else. Because human beings, I can convince you today, but you can go to bed, wake up tomorrow, and then come back with a different mindset. So changing the human beings is really hard. Changing the group of human beings is even harder. Trying to get the language so they can talk to each other is yet another nightmare. They never asked me about that bit. The other things which sometimes they forget to ask about are what will other people, our competitors, etc., what will their responses be? Because it's all very well for you to go on your change program. But if somebody else, a competitor, is going to copy you straight away, or what's the point? So they forget to do the, I always describe it as a change which is going to make an, give you an advantage must be quite difficult to do and must be done internally in terms of inside your organization. If you, for example, buy a piece of software, hey guys, we bought Teams, and you add it to your business, there is no competitive advantage unless you change your internal ways of working. So they always forget to ask me about that part because they don't realize there's a difference. Very important. One of the things that we've recognized is that under pressure, people will revert back to what they learned first. Of course they do. If you haven't reinforced it and you haven't got people to buy in, then basically they're running a book on to, you know, when will this pass? Get another change program. And they're basically betting on when it will fail and will revert back to type. Absolutely. Absolutely. So buy-in. Can I just pick up on buy-in? Because I get really fed up with all the academics and the business gurus who go in about buy-in. So they'll tell people you need buy-in, but they never explain how you do it because they don't know how to do it. So when I'm trying to teach these people, I say, look, oh, they say, we want buy-in. I go, great. Okay. Let me explain to you how you get buy-in. Okay. So Marcus, you and I are doing a podcast. Okay. So I say to you, Marcus, we're going to do this podcast. Well, what's the, what's the worst thing that can happen for you? And you'd say to me, well, Eddie, you could be a bit boring. Maybe we talk too fast, etc." I go, oh, great. Okay. So then I say to you, so what are you going to do? Or what can I do, help you to do so that it's not boring? And I shut up. And then you say, I'll interrupt. I'll ask you questions. Okay, well, what can I do to make sure you don't talk too fast? I'll shake my head in despair. Great. All of a sudden, your problems, which I have now unearthed, I've helped you to figure out how you're going to fix them. So now you're no longer afraid of the webcast. You got it. That's how you do buy-in. You engage people in what's underlying in their heads, which they're scared of. Then you help them to fix it themselves and support them with that. Then by asking questions, of course, they invent the solution in their own heads. And guess what? They have bought in. That is the mechanism. I've read hundreds of books. Nobody tells you how to do it. So everyone goes, oh, we need to have buy-in. Let's have a meeting. When did a meeting ever give anyone buy-in? Have you been to meetings? Have you been uh-huh. to meetings? When did a meeting generate buy-in? When did getting a motivational speaker generate buy-in? It just makes people excited. It's just nonsense. I couldn't agree more. I have a perennial fight with motivational speakers because basically it's snake oil. Don't diss them too much because I do motivational speaking. Very lucrative. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, <laughs> you don't do motivational speaking. You do inspirational speaking. Motivation yeah. <laughs> cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. <laughs> they have to work out why they want to do it for themselves. Brilliant. And this reminds me of the old Zig Ziglar quote, which is prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Yes. And you're not going to get buy-in until you've found the root cause and the motivation and the intent. And if you don't find motive, cause, and intent, you have done them a massive disservice. Yes. Because you're setting them up to blow a load of money on something that is not going to work and is going to create morale issues and slow them down. This really pisses me off. So my question to you is this. Let's set the cat among the pigeons. Why is it that most training... Frankly, you would be better off buying thousands of lottery tickets. (laughs) Training. Okay, so I'm going to diss training and I'm going to diss consultancy as well, if that's okay with you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm all of So the training, I've already been rude about the the wedding stuff. The wedding drives the training to be more rah-rah and exciting than useful. The second part about the training is, as you said, the diagnosis is missing. When, When I'm working with a client, I have a very straightforward process I have in my mind, which I use. Five stages. Step number one, engage. That's the open door bit. Do they like me? Do I like them? Does their business seem interesting? Do they like what I'm saying? Am I too troublesome? Engage. If you haven't done that bit, forget the rest of it. 
Then diagnose, absolutely spot on. Now, the way I do diagnosis is in, is talking to people, but I also have, I use a causality-based diagnosis method. So when they tell them, this is happening, tell me this is happening, I don't go, yes, that's happening. I go, why is it happening? And then I try and work out whether they're telling me the right answer by looking for things I should expect and things I shouldn't expect. I'm simplifying it. But what's really important is I want to understand the underlying causes and more importantly, the, the map of it. Why? Because unless you've mapped all the issues, when you put your solution in, you could be destroying something which is really useful. I'll give you an excuse, example from years ago. I worked with a consultancy which was really successful. The reason they're successful was every time they got a new youngster, they would make them work like 400 hours a week. They'd give them a hard time. Their skills would go through the roof in no time and they could deliver really well. And then the move was to a concept, let's train people so that they're not working so hard, blah, 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 et cetera. Now, that was a separate project. But when I was doing my diagnosis on what they wanted, which is to make more money, I realized that the whole machine they had relied on being able to train people up really fast. It's like junior doctors doing 400 days a year, 400 hours or whatever, which is a year. So the other initiative they had was going to remove what was central to their money making. So I said, okay, you're going to get rid of that. So these guys aren't trained up as fast. What are you doing to replace it? Because otherwise your training will damage your bigger business. And so training often happens either without the need or actually trains people to do stuff which is detrimental to the organization. And consultants do the same thing. They sell what they want to sell. They don't sell what's needed. So the diagnosis is crucial. Then we design. We design together so it matches the culture. Then you implement. You don't implement before you design. And then embedding. And if you haven't played all those games, you are simply wasting their time and money. So it's engage, diagnose, co-design, implement, embed. Yeah. And you'll notice it spells a certain thing, certain word, engage, diagnose, design. (laughs) Unconscious. (laughs) Subliminal programming. I messed it up because I called it co-design. Yeah, you should have Um, said design together, then you'd have got away with it. (laughs) So the the Eddie model. One of them. So, So help me understand this then. Meetings we touched on. I have a view that meetings should be exciting. They should be fun. They should be challenging, a bit uncomfortable. You should fight in meetings and you should look forward to them like you do a blockbuster film. And when you come out, you should feel energized. Now, in my experience of corporate life, that never happened. And what I'm curious about is why so much time is spent in pointless meetings where people, frankly, I mean, you're dead for a bloody long time. You don't want to look back as your life is flashing past you and realize about seven years of your life was spent twiddling your thumbs, thinking about anything but why you were there. So first of all, let's deal with physical meetings. Why are they so bad? So a little bit of context. So I remember years ago when I was a young tutor at Astrid, somebody explaining to me, one of the the people on a course, telling me about going to their very first meeting. So although you don't realize that once upon a time, organizations and corporates didn't have meetings. It's hard to believe. The concept of a meeting, it goes all the way back to things like parlays at war, where you had to sit across the table with each other to fix each other, fix stuff. Then after a period of time, the world started accelerating. So change started to happen in organizations. You have to remember back, I used to work at Shell. When I worked at Shell, when you joined, you got a number and the number wasn't your number, it was the number of the job. That's how slow the pace of change was. If you worked in the civil service, you'd have a job title like, I don't know, foreign service desk, because the desk stayed all the same and the people came and went. That's how little change there was. So this is what how life was in the era before meetings. So meetings were a, a starting point to try and deal with accelerating change. So my guess is early meetings were probably quite useful, but they didn't know how to do them. They had to teach them how to do agendas and all those things. Okay, then the pace of change continued to accelerate. And I think that's where everything started to fall apart because a meeting is usually designed for the talking and the interaction, not for the doing of the work. So if you have mostly stable and you need a few things to discuss, meetings are great. When you start to get more change and there's mostly change and less stable, meetings which don't deliver anything are not very much used to you. By now they had a form to them. So people felt they should have these meetings, they should have agendas. Controlling human beings in a physical space is quite hard because they all sit and then you've got to get stuff out of them and get them to move and all the politics and all the the position. 
So very quickly, people learn how to go to a meeting and be in a meeting without taking any, away any work and by looking good and therefore boosting their careers. And from that point on, which I reckon is probably like mid-80s, early 70s, the whole use of a meeting was then dead. And you'll see in the 90s, 2000s, we started using workshops, which are like what you described, fun, creative, we get some stuff done. And we'd have those off-site, wow, you know. So, but the meeting still continued. There's another very, very valid reason for meetings. Are you old enough to remember when the futurist said that by now, we'd only be working one day a week? Nah. You remember that? And everyone thinks it hasn't happened. My view is it has happened. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the you other four get, days are spent in meetings. <laughs> Eddie, you only get 25 to 35% of productive time out of an employee. And oh, there you go. Get- One day a week. The other four days are spent in meetings. <laughs> well, when it gets better, when you take that number and you yeah. put it in sales context, the time available for selling is only 12 to 21%. Uh, what that means is that in sales, the average salesperson is only in front of a prospect and highly productive between 3 and 7.35% of the time that you are paying. It's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely fucking crazy. It drives so, me to distraction. So, Marcus, I have a question to ask you. What are they spending the rest of the time doing? At the risk of being entirely crude, masturbatory work. They're spending their time <laughs> shuffling emails around. They're pretending to do research. Uh, they are writing utterly pointless proposals for people who won't buy. Uh, <laughs> utterly fucking useless stuff. It's yeah. crazy. Yes. Part average in sales is shockingly poor. Uh, but what's worse is their managers tolerate this shit. Why? Why is management so bad? Because they benchmark. If you're doing a rubbish job and I benchmark against you and I'm doing a rubbish job, then I'm fine. Benchmarking is like a crazy thing to do. It assumes yesterday is like tomorrow and that if you and I do the same thing, it's the best that can be done. So, of course, they benchmark. The thing is, some of them are also games. I mean, I'm joking about the one day of work, but I think it has happened. Like email is a game. I call it email tag. I email you, you reply to me, blind CC somebody else, I bump somebody in the corridor, 20, 40 emails go around. Finally, we realize we've got to get together and discuss it because it's a thing which needs conversation, but we're not in the same place, so we decide to have a conference call. My definition yeah. of a conference call is one person talking and 12 people just continue to do their emails. So they get to the end, nobody's bought it, nobody was listening. You know, so the decisions happened, no one's actually heard it, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Then they go away and they, they just do that again the next week. So a lot of these rituals and things make people feel very comfortable, fill up the time, but they don't necessarily progress anything. And also we make things like the ways of working too difficult. You know, if you're discussing something complex on the phone, it's impossible. If it's complex, you need a whiteboard. You need to draw it. You need to show documents. You need to show spreadsheets or whatever. You have to have other things. You know, just talking won't work. And talking on a mobile, insane. Complex issue. You're talking on a mobile. You're not taking any notes. Who are you? Einstein's grandfather? You can remember all of that? Of course not. So whenever I see an executive talking on a mobile phone, my immediate response is, they're really not doing anything. They're one of those four days. This is no value to anyone because then at the end, they'll say, can you send me that document? And then you'll send them the email with the document. But of course, they're on their phone, so they can't open the attachment. The whole thing is like a complex charade of madness. Absolutely. Well, that then brings us to where we are today, talking of madness. Obviously, for those of you listening later on in the decade, this is the time of the coronavirus. And everybody is being forced to work from home. They're in isolation. What used to work probably doesn't. They don't have interaction. So what I'm curious about is your advice to organizations and leaders in terms of how to manage a complex, distributed, largely isolated workforce who are having to go through and force change and still be productive. Yeah, I like the fact that you imagine there'll be a later in the decade. I do love your positivity. (laughs) (laughs) Are you espousing the the Armageddon? I really have no idea. This is a new thing for most of us, including me. So it's a really great question. I'll build two bits before I start answering it. The first is the model I've used for guiding most of what I do, because I like to do stuff which is concrete. I don't like theoretical stuff. Everything I teach is teachable and applicable within a 15-minute cycle. Like I've been teaching about uh, the Eddie model. I taught you how to do 
buy-in in less than three minutes. So the reason I do that is because I have a view that the pace of change has been accelerating and going faster. Exponential is a word I can use now because yeah. everyone knows what exponential is because of COVID-19. The ability of people and organizations to learn and change is flat. It's a straight line. They don't change. You can't do what your boss hasn't asked you to do. So that's flat. Exponential will always cross over a flat line. And for me, that's what's happened to us in the past 30 years. We used to be able to, remember I was saying, change was small, same, to, same things was the big one. We could learn fast and the world was changing. Everything is good. Let's go to our meetings, have small discussions. Now, the pace of change, the complexity, the interaction are bigger than we can actually cope with. So this has been running for 15, 20 years, and we've been trying to cope with it. So people have tried to digitize. So I'll tell the story out there, and I'll tell my own story. So what they've done is they've gone, we should give everyone email. Do you remember the days of email? I call that generation one. Let's have email. Let's have conference calls. And so they thought they were starting to digitize and connect people by using email and conference calls. And they realized it didn't work. Everyone was drowning in emails. The conference calls didn't work. So they went, oh, we'll tell you what. We'll add some more things to it, more tools. We'll add webinars. We'll add WebEx. We'll add Zoom. We'll add Skype. So they built all these other apps, WhatsApp, et cetera, et cetera, Twitter and stuff like that. And um, Yama and all these other things. And they've been running before the coronavirus, fooling themselves that they had made a change. But go back to my earlier point. If the change isn't internal and difficult, and you're just accessorizing, adding stuff on, putting a new tie on, it's not really a differentiator, and it's not really change. And the way they got away with not realizing that Zoom and Twitter and Skype and Link and Teams were not really helping them was they would intersperse these with face-to-face. So they do three or four agile meetings on Zoom, and then they totally go, ha, guys, what we need to do is let's have a meeting to discuss it, and they fly everyone together. So they had no idea that the methods and tools and apps they worked with didn't work. And if they had isolated people who they were working with, they would do the same thing. They'd say, okay, you can work at home for a month, then come into the office. COVID-19, they can't do face-to-face. So the bitter, horrible truth comes to roost. The tools they've got don't work. They don't work for human beings. I think what's happened is there's so much complexity has grown up around processes, systems, People's jobs have been complicated. And I see this as a God-given opportunity to simplify. If we don't take advantage of this, um, then all that's going to happen is the wheels are going to come crashing off and lots of businesses will come to a grinding halt. And then main so drive right. You are so right. I mean, I've been calling the coronavirus a terribly horrible ill wind, which blows some good. And you're absolutely right. It's basically telling us look, you have to address these issues now. There is some other good which apparently has brought, like clearing up the sky so respiratory disease isn't killing so many people in China and reducing the amount of transport on the road so people are dying for fewer road accident deaths and stuff like that. So there's some good stuff, but it it really is a bad thing, frightening people and making them ill. But from an organizational point of view, you're spot on. So here's my journey towards the same point. About 12 years ago, I realized that I was talking a great fight about digital and change and stuff like that, but I was running Pentacle, and Pentacle was primarily education training, face-to-face, going around the world in airplanes and standing in front of groups of people. That was nuts. It's the exact opposite of what I was saying. It was against my brand, because my brand is do what you're saying. Don't just talk. Am I allowed to say bollocks on this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, don't just say bollocks. Okay. So we started trying to think, how would you replicate a human experience using technology? And we looked at lots of technologies and we came to the conclusion, the only way to do it is with some form of virtual environment. Because in a virtual environment, you see people, you see things, you can move, you're autonomous. It can end up feeling like a real office or a real classroom or a real workshop if you can put up stickies and other people can move your stickies and tear up your, your, your notes. So that's the route we went down. So I've been living in this world of running my business and teaching clients and supporting the client businesses in a virtual world. The advantage of a virtual world is nobody knows how to behave there. So when they arrive, coming back to your point of simplification, I say to them, everybody on Cube does this one thing. We agree what the goal is, the hopes, and we agree what we don't want to go wrong. Nobody argues because, you know, like someone you go to a foreign country and they tell you in this country, we sit on the floor and we eat with our right hand. You just do it. You don't go, no, no, your culture is completely wrong. Unless you're an idiot, of course. So you just do it. So they come onto the virtual world and I teach them simple ways 
to align simple ways to understand what their business objectives are, simple ways to plan. And so they end up doing new behaviors with simple processes in that virtual world. Then they get used to doing it. Their brain, of course, can't tell the difference. When I say virtual world, you don't need a headset and you just look at your screen or with earphones. Three-dimensional sound fools your brain as, as, much as, a, as much as a screen which moves with your head. So, okay. so once they've done it enough times, they dream about it and they can't separate the virtual experience from the real experience. So they go into real life and they go, right, Marcus, we've got this really complex thing. What do you think is the biggest thing which could go wrong? And immediately they've taken the learning and they brought it to real life. And I'm grinning to myself because they don't even realize they've done it. So that's been my experience. So when we come into this crisis with COVID-19, where it's now obvious that all the tools which are being given away for free, because I think the uh, providers are realizing that people won't buy them unless they give them away for free, they don't work. And people are saying, we want a more human experience because our people are remote and they're miserable. I've been living that already. So I go, well, maybe this is something we could think about. And this is uh, Cube, is it? Yeah, this is Cube. So it's Cube, Q-U-B-E dot C-C. Basically, what happens is, Organization by organization, we get we, they have a campus. So they have a whole set of rooms, places, but the campus isn't important, uh, cafe areas. What's important is the facilitation and the, the people who guide them to these simple new ways of behaving and working. And we do that with the clients until we've embedded it and then we let them go on their own. This is really interesting because it's just sparked a thought in my head which is that what you're really talking about is behavioral change. Only thing you can control and manage is behavior. You don't control the result. The yes. result is a byproduct of behavior. Yes. Um, and so you're doing the right things in the right way yes. often enough to get the outcome that you're looking for. Correct, exactly. So we try and do two things. Behavioral change is the big one because that's the really hard one. But thinking is important as well. So it's important we give them frameworks with which to think in a different way. I'll give you an example. With many people who've come through the corporate world, if you give them a problem, if they know what to do and how to do it, they understand how to break it up and how to run that particular activity and project. If you give them something where you don't know what to do or how to do it, they just flounder, run away, or just make trouble. So the first thinking we do is we say, you know, not all types of change are the same. Some things are very clear in goals and methods. We call this painting by numbers because they follow a process. Some of them are just horrible. You feel bad. Aren't you feeling embarrassed about yourself? We go, yes, I am. We say, well, you're lost in the fog. So we've labeled it for them. And then we say to them, how do you move in the fog? One step at a time. So now we've shown them a process. So their thinking now goes from, I must know all the answers when I start, to I'll take a step, review it, see where I'm going, then the next step, engaging people as I go. So the thinking is important, and then their behavior basically um, makes it happen, and then, fingers crossed, we get the right results. So we tend to push both thinking, new thinking, and behavior. I think this also points to another really important fundamental, which is self-concept you will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. My experience is that a lot of people have programming, scripting, tells them that failure in role is a personality defect. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So they don't maximize their risk, they minimize it. Our definition of risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what you've got. Now, if you can't cope with the worst case scenario, don't do it. But if you can, then maximize your risk. Risk failure. Risk asking the naive, stupid question. Um, My favorite proverb is the Chinese proverb, which is ask a question, be a fool for five minutes. Don't, and you're a fool for life. (laughs) So often people repress that. And I think one of the beauties of moving into this virtual environment, you see it on Twitter, which is rather unrestricted. But I think if if people feel freer to ask those questions because they don't have the proximity of that immediate judgment, this, again, is another great opportunity to think differently. And and this brings me to uh, something else that we were talking about in the prep. There's a fabulous book called Range by David Epstein. It talks about how generalists thrive in specialisms. In the same way, your background and my background, both of us have come from very diverse backgrounds. I've worked in 500 different segments of the market. 
this is probably my fifth career. And I come at problems differently to people who just specialized in selling ERP systems to financial companies. Yes. They're constrained by their background, by their history. And this is where I'd like to really wrap the conversation up, which is how does diversity and generalist exposure drive creativity um, within teams and organizations? Okay. So the first thing is we mustn't be hard on the specialists. I'll explain why. Because it made sense once upon a time. If the world is changing much more slowly than you can learn, then experience becomes really important. Structures are limited. Therefore, you can specialize. And by specializing, you get the best out of it. Also, if the world is changing much slower than you can learn, if you get something wrong, it's your fault. You should have checked. You should have. So in other words, failure equals bad. All failure equals bad because you could have got it right. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world which can change faster than we can learn. So suddenly, failure could be good because you're trying, as you said, something new. You're bringing different threads together. So failure could be good, but there's also bad failure when you could have known better. But what that means is that if you're moving from a world where you can learn faster, the world is changing, where specialism helps you, to a world which is changing faster than than you can learn, then specialism stops helping you. The joy is in the gaps between the specialisms. The joy is in the way of different ways of seeing and framing the problem. The joy is in having the connection so you can bring, I think Scott Adams describes it as your talent stack, all the different bits together in order to make, make it happen. So that's really quite important in terms of understanding it and thinking about the risk. And that's why they think risk is a challenge. If you start thinking about the new environment, I mean, For me, the virtual environment really helps because we use really simple avatars. They don't even look like human beings. They're just boxy. And that's because we discovered things like the more they look like human beings, the worse you feel. And if they look like your geography teacher you hated at school, you react negatively to their avatar instead of uh, whatever. But because people are disembodied, we find that on Cube, we get introverts. They forget everyone else is there. They contribute their stickies. They draw because they don't feel constrained. So coming back to your point about diversity, one of the joys of the virtual environment is you can deal with diversity. And it's just a boxy avatar. You don't know whether they're male, old, young. You have no idea or no preconceptions. So that's really a very positive thing. Diversity on its own in terms of creativity, there is something really important. It goes back to your point about simplicity. If you and I have grown up together, been best buddies all the way through from school, and there's a gang of five of us, and we decide to do something, boy, are we efficient because we know exactly how everyone else works. If you decide to then invite your other half to join this gang, suddenly the performance of the gang goes down because we've got someone else. We don't know how they work. We've got our own jokes. They're feeling uncomfortable. Performance drops. So when people say diversity is good, be careful because when you increase diversity, performance, creativity, everything else drops. And it keeps dropping as you increase diversity until you get to the point where everyone has to change how they work in order to increase include and engage and involve everyone else. And then it zooms up much higher than the initial starting point. So yes, when you get to a level of diversity, it works. The other way of beating it is if you have a process, a simple way, so as diversity increases, you can get people working together better, then you don't get that dip. And that's one of the things we can create in a virtual environment because we all say to everyone, this is how we work. And so irrespective of what they brought, they all work the same way. So we get that immediate improvement in their productivity, creativity, involvement, and everything else without the dip. So I think those are really great questions. And again, for businesses, if they haven't figured out with this particular crisis that almost everything they're doing is broken. I talked about the technology, but everything else, annual planning, the way they do sales, the way they think about customers separate from them, the way they treat their employees. If they don't realize that everything they've got running at the moment is old world and broken, I don't know how much future they have. Well, this then reminds me of something else that's really very prevalent in my thinking at the moment. Are you familiar with Price's Law? No, go for Price's Law. Derek DeSoto Price uh, came up with this observation when he was observing academics, but actually it seems to hold true in most organizations. 50% of your production will come from the square root. Oh, yes, of the number of, yeah, got it, yeah, okay. If you have 10 people, three people produce 50%. If you have 100 people, will produce 50%. Exactly, yeah, yeah, got it. 100 will produce it. Now, 
what happens is talent grows linearly, whereas incompetence grows exponentially. From a training perspective, the golden goose is being able to help the middle 60, 70% yes. perform like Correct. the top performance. Yes, exactly. And then a hugely important question around simplification and automation to be able to move uh, low-value behaviors and activities down the chain of production so that the high-value producers can focus on high-value activities. And again, I think what we've been talking about offers an opportunity for organizations to take advantage of this yes. um, because it's going to force organizations to simplify their processes and automate and create systems and structures so that they can de-skill some of the stuff that the higher performers are producing and enable them to free up time so that they can be more creative, think about strategy, managers to focus on things like hiring the best people, getting the best out of them, making sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work. So I'm really curious about how you see organizations that have come from a traditional background, raise the bar to enable the top performers to produce more and the people lower down uh, the chain of production to be more effective and more productive. Yeah, so, so just two things. The first is I trained initially as an engineer, okay? So I've had to learn all my other stuff about psychology and stuff like that much later, and it doesn't come naturally to me. So I really empathize with techs and nerds, and that's why I was. So let's say, for example, today, I want an engineer to be able to, I don't know, connect emotionally with their team because they've just been promoted to team lead or whatever it is. Now, what we used to do was you'd go on a training course and they put you into into role plays and every tech nerds, they hate that stuff and they'd come out and they'd still be rubbish at it. So the way I do it is I go, right, well, I'm an engineer. I can follow rules. So what are the rules between about emphasizing with your stuff? So I will do some research and I will build what I call a performance enhancement tool of this is how you listen to people. Step one, when they're talking, bite your lips. Step two, repeat back the last three words they said. Step four, summarize it, see if they nod. If they nod, move forward. If they don't nod, then ask again. So you can make, mechanize the process of empathy. And that's what I would then teach them how to do it. And they'll be brilliant at engaging everyone. You see, so sometimes you just need to make the the process visible so people can follow it. It's not really necessarily a question of level or capability. They just need to be able to follow it. So that's one element. The second is, I think it's safer for an organization or business to enhance its people rather than plan to automate or replace them. Because in the long run, if you have no people because you've automated everything, you have no business. The other element, I think, is that with things like AI, AI can understand strategy and marketplaces better than senior people. So if you're, if you're hoping that by focusing on the people who would do strategy, that's your future, it's a big risk because somebody else will just get all the data from all the companies, every single se- sector, feed it into an AI, and the AI will start to suggest products or services or whatever else. So we have to enhance all our people. And the way we do it is by getting them to think together, not work together, think together, which is what collaboration is about. So simplification, common language, allowing your real talent to connect with the other people, giving your 67% processes and mechanisms which mimic the way the talent behave so they can increase their performance, all thinking together with the same heart and vision or similar heart and vision, organization, go do good things for the world. So I have a slightly different view from most people about where tech is taking us. I think if you're going to automate, don't automate the simple jobs, automate the CEO's job. The quicker we replace the CEO with AI, the better, because they, after all, cost our fortune, and it's only one brain. And what's really interesting is the research on this is that the highest paid CEOs, the value that they bring is notional at best. Okay, so let me ask you this then. In terms of the direction that business is going to have to turn. How are we going to help people who are feeling isolated, they're undergoing enforced change because of COVID-19, and for the next year or so, the likelihood is the whole world of work is going to be turned upside down. What advice would you give to people who are working from home in order to stay sane and be productive and keep their jobs? because they're bringing value. 
So there's, there's sort of two answers. Most of the people working at home are not on cube. So what I do is I focus on, okay, you've not got anyone there. You're having to type everything you, you, you're working on, your text space. Occasionally they drag you into a conference and they make you put your webcam on, but you're an introvert and you hate that. So you'd actually much rather be isolated, but the boss loves it because they can see you. Madness, madness. Most people hate seeing their faces on webcams. So I give them advice about how they should operate at different levels. One, physically, make sure you move, make sure you talk to somebody else if they're not at work, you know, make sure you have jokes in your text messages. And so I can give them things which they can do with the traditional technology tools, which everyone is using. So things like, you know, be positive, write your messages so people respond to you with jokes, build your cyber personality so they give you the work, but also try and make you feel part of it, et cetera. So I can do that for the people who are remotely working. If they're on cube, isolation is not a problem because once you put your headsets on, you get your 3D sound and you're in one of the cubicles, one of the rooms, and you're talking around, moving around, you go to the cafe, you literally forget that you're not meeting them. The team on Pentacle, we have coffee together every morning. Guess what? Everyone brings their own coffee. <laughs> we have this thing called the simultaneous sip, which we stole from Scott Adams, where we all have a slurp at the same time. And it really begins to feel like you're sitting in Starbucks, okay? And so there's two bits of advice. One would be tricks for not getting the isolation. But my real advice is just, just get on cube and stop messing around. So, so that's <laughs> it. <laughs> Tell me this. Who's influencing you at the moment? What are you reading, watching, listening to? that you'd recommend the listeners to pay attention to? So what I've been doing over the past year is I've been working really hard on trying to find outliers who say things which the mainstream rubbish. Because I'm sort of an outlier because I, when I talked about virtual, everyone thought I was nuts. When I left Ashridge to set up Pentacle Virtual Business School, they said virtual means not really. So you're not really a business school. So most of my life and my career, everything I've been saying, people have pointed at me and gone, he's a crazy person. When I started with Cube, they told me nobody would ever use a computer for communication. Yeah. Because we were on email at the time. Why would we need anything better than email? So I've been looking at people who are outliers. So people I've followed, I've studied are people like Jordan Peterson, because he's an outlier and everybody hates him. And I tried to find out why they hate him. And so I literally read everything he'd written, including his horribly thick book, Maps of Meaning, which is interesting. And I don't know why they hate him, but I guess they just haven't read any of his stuff. He's basically saying human beings are programmable. They're all very simple creatures and try to live a good life. So I've summarized like thousands of pages in a sentence. Sorry, Jordan. I've been following Scott Adams, who I, I've been following for ages mostly because he was the only person who predicted that Donald Trump was going to win the election, and then he got it right. So I thought, that's an outlier. He's weird. What's he seeing I'm not seeing? So I've been following that. I follow loads of people on Twitter who are a bit off, off, off the, the scale because I'm just trying to understand what the patterns are for these. The people you described who are generalist specialists sit in many different boxes and see the world differently. I think they give me an insight into the future. I think people like that tell you today what's going to come your way in six months' time. They're time travelers, and I find them very useful. I'd recommend that you connect with a guy called Martin Lucas. Uh, he's a mathematical psychologist. I think um, I'm following really, him, yes. A yeah. couple of really good books that I'd recommend. I've mentioned a couple of them already. One is Range by David Epstein. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. And also Loon Shots by Safi Bakal, B-A-S-C-A-L-L. -L. Yes. Really interesting. Okay, you've got a golden ticket. You can go back to the idiot Eddie, age 23. What advice would you give him? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was a real idiot, wasn't he? Um, things I remember. I remember being given more work at work and telling my colleagues at work, and they immediately said, did you get a pay rise? And I said, no, and they said, you idiot. So I think I probably was an idiot then. Because I didn't even think to ask. That's how stupid I was. But the main piece of advice I'd give is very simple, which is whenever you think of an idea or you get an insight, start work on it, build the basic bare bones, and then file it neatly with a date 10 years later. And don't refer to it or mention it again for 10 years. Then take it out of the box and go, ta-da! Because I have wasted so much of my life telling people about what's coming and being kicked 
and uh, everything else. You know, you must be crazy. How is that going to happen? Nobody ever does that. And I've wasted my life trying to show people and teach people that, etc. Whereas all I needed to do was go, right, I know how I'm going to teach that. I've got the methods. I've got the frameworks. I've got the other tools. Park it 10 years from now. Bring it out of the box and they'll go, oh, that's amazing. You know, that would be the one piece of advice I'd have given myself. I think I'd have had a much better life. I'd also have had more time to do other stuff. <laughs> Okay, so let, let me ask you this, and again, it can be in life or in work. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Oh gosh, millions of things. So work-wise, it's still the challenge of just trying to move my clients faster. It's still difficult, still takes time. One of the elements also is getting new team members for Pentacle. These days, everybody wants to be a guru, so everybody just sort of comes up with stuff, goes on the internet as a guru. And every single trainer wants to do their own thing with some funny models and stuff like that. So it's really hard to grow the network without bringing in people who imagine that they've got to invent something or be creative rather than just be part of a team who are really serving the world. So that's, that's a real big challenge uh, at that end. On a, a personal level, um, main things, I want to do more flying. And I, at the moment, are putting a lot of energy into supporting my clients. So that makes life really sort of, lovely blue sky day. I wish I was flying. So, so that's a bit frustrating. How are you using your calendar to block time off for the stuff that's important to you? So the really good news is I'm not allowed anywhere near my, my calendar. I have a wonderful person who looks after me and manages it for me and blocks time off for me and everything else. And then I secretly go and squeeze things in which shouldn't be there. <laughs> Why is that wonderful person not blocking time off for flying? Oh, they are. But then I go and say, oh, well, it's not sunny enough because I want to do something. I, I sabotage myself, to be honest. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's when you the jet. In terms of accelerating uh, client decisions, have you come across a concept called negative reverse selling? No, tell me, tell me. Negative reverse selling, essentially Newton's three laws of motion. As an engineer, no doubt you remember them. Yes. So the first law of motion is a body at rest stays at rest unless acted upon by an external force. The external force is you as a seller. The a body at rest is a neutral prospect. Body at rest stays at rest, body in motion stays in motion. So our job is to get them swinging one way or the other on the pendulum. Yeah. And Newton's third law of motion, which is the most important one, is for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Now, in sales, we're classically taught sell features and benefits. And Alec Baldwin in uh, Glen Gary oh, yes. uh, beat the drum about ABC always be closing. He was wrong. It's always be contracting. Um, <laughs> and the other thing is that... If you try and close a prospect, because of Newton's law, the instinct of the prospect is to go yes. in the other direction. Say no. So, yeah, exactly. So instead of trying to get them to say yes, try and get them to say no to you. So in a scenario, it might be, you know, Eddie, this sounds interesting. And my response to that would be, you know, I'm getting the sense that you're hesitating. Do you mind telling me why that is? Well, X, Y, Z. So I think I'm hearing you tell me that you probably aren't going to go ahead. Would that be fair? And so you go the opposite way. And so you're always more negative than they are. The last couple of days, I've been teaching people this because uh, one of the big obstacles people are facing is they're coming up against stalls and delays because people are using COVID-19 as an excuse to do nothing nothing and lock down the uh, the hatchets. in this day and age, there are a couple of things. The first thing is we have to simplify. We have yes. to get out of debt and avoid debt. Yes. And we have to flow positive. If your business is not simple, it's uh, riddled in debt because you've Absolutely. been stuck in banks for the last 10 years. You're stuck with poor cash flow. You're going to die a slow and painful death. You may not yeah. realize you're dead, but you will. The other thing is that people hate to be sold, but they love to buy. And people buy for their reasons, not your reasons. So I can try and handle your objections. I can try and convince you, but I can't convince you because people have to convince themselves. Do the opposite. And what we find is if you use this negative reverse selling, between three to eight questions, negatively framed, normally move someone from no to can I give you a check? That's interesting. Okay, I shall definitely try that. 
But I'll tell you what I've been doing as well. Another project in my mind, as well as looking at people who everyone hates, I've been looking at universality of models. And one of the things I've started to notice, and I've known this for ages, is that a lot of models are exactly the same. I mean, you use Newton's three, uh, three laws for describing the sales process. But there are lots of models, like um, people are in a stasis, they go into chaos. Once they're in chaos, they try and seek stasis again. Once they're in stasis, they then become hidebound. Therefore, chaos is their only freedom. And so that's a pattern. And you'll see that in organizations, in innovation. And so there are all these models which we haven't yet understood, but I'm sort of slowly working my way through to wonder whether alongside the models and frameworks and patterns we have within physics, whether there are similar models and patterns across the rest of life, which we sort of haven't codified. And I have a funny feeling there's probably half a dozen which describe literally everything. But that's probably I'll spend the next... 20 years trying to understand. Well, um, if you haven't read it, Ray Dalio's book, Principles, is a fabulous Yes, I've read, read that, yeah. The appendix is really worth it. Yeah. Just the appendix, because those yeah. models, those structures, and the other one yeah, that is... The thing is, a very long nut list of models. I'm wondering whether it's even a shorter version. <laughs> you keep going, yeah. <laughs> probably do a shorter version, but again, <laughs> you know, it's people taking the good bits out. <laughs> And the, the other book that I strongly urge everyone to read is Keith Cunningham's The Road Less Stupid. If you're a CEO, a leader, or an owner, you absolutely have to read that book. And it will make you flinch every chapter. <laughs> um, but he's definitely one for you to follow. Eddie, thank you Brilliant. so much. Been, oh, my pleasure. interesting. And I would love to do this again if you're up for it. How can people get hold of you? How do they get hold of me? Um, I'm easy to find. Twitter at Eddie O'Bang, E-D-D-I-E. I'm on LinkedIn. You can track me down at Pentacle. And if you go to Cube, the best thing is go to Cube, Q-U-B-E dot C-C forward slash start, get registered. And then when you're registered in the box, it says, why do you want Cube? Say, I want to talk to Eddie. And I'll meet you on Cube and we'll do some good stuff together. I shall be doing that shortly. So thank you so much. This has been a fabulous conversation. If you guys have enjoyed it, please comment, like, share, subscribe, get in touch with Eddie, get in touch with me. And if you think that you or someone you know would be a great guest on the Inquisitor podcast, please let me know. On that note, Eddie, if you could think of two people who you think would be a great guest for my audience, who would you pick? Straight off the top of my head now? Yeah. Can I email you? <laughs> I can't think yeah, straight off the top of my head. The listeners won't then have me to hold to account. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. You're off the hook. I can't think straight off the top of my head. Two people who would who you, who you'd really get. They have to be old farts like like uh, you and I are. I presume they, they um, need to be outliers, and they need outliers. to be people desperately troublesome outliers. I'll email yeah. you. I've got I've got some. I've probably got some. No, I haven't got any thoughts straight off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. Good luck. Thanks. Bye. So that's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling. Bye-bye.